Acts chapter 5 in our, in our Bibles. And uh, if you will, would you please stand that we might read God's Word together. Our text today is verses 1 through 11. We're going to read that whole passage. And so, uh, as we do every Sunday, let us read together and let us read aloud. Acts 5, beginning at verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Shall we pray? Father, May we come to a greater understanding of what it means to fear you properly and rightly. May we come to realize that even today we are to fear you. For we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. But Lord, we we ask that in the reading of this passage, you would extend and and bless and, and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Anoint us, Lord God, with your wisdom and grace and understanding, but especially your grace. As we consider these words today and how they apply to us and how, Lord God, we we need to realize that you are still a God that is holy, holy, holy. And Lord... May we awaken to these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. You all may be seated. That's a good way to get our day started, isn't it? I was reading the title of a message on this particular text by a fellow Calvary Chapel pastor, and, uh, and it made me chuckle just a bit. His uh, title for the message concerning this same passage is this, Don't Be Caught Dead in Church. I like, 
I thought that was pretty good. Don't be caught dead in church. You'd have to admit that is sound advice in light of what we just read. But I wonder how many people have been attending church week after week, month after month, year after year, and while their bodies are in motion and there appears to be life on the superficial plane, not much life exists in the Spirit. Even those who outwardly show some life in church services could in fact bring forth only dead faith and dead works. What I mean by that is that I'm not impressed by what I see. I'm impressed by what I see in the hearts of people who serve God. Take for instance what Paul says in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 verses 13 and 14 when he says, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle, uh, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, notice, to serve the living God. If we have a living God, then we need to be alive in serving this God. And then James would add this in James chapter 2, verse 26, For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Dead works, dead faith. It doesn't matter what the body does on the outside. And what we've seen in the first four chapters of the book of Acts is a church made alive by the Spirit of God. A church that is made alive by the Spirit of God. From the 120 at Pentecost to the thousands that came to Christ through the preaching of Peter and the apostles, the Holy Spirit gave to them not only a life that was evident to all, but a life that raised them to a higher spiritual level as seen in their koinonia, as seen in their fellowship, as seen in their communion, as well as in their godly and holy living. Think about this. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at what it says about the, 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 the foundation of the church. And it says there in Acts, 4, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 2 verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which means they were in the Word of God. They stead, uh, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In other words, the koinonia, the sharing one with another, in the breaking of bread, communion, and of course just meals, and then in prayers. But then it says in verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So at the very foundation of the church was this understanding of the fear of God. The right and reverential and respectful fear of God. And then it says in verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is what we saw last time. That was repeated for us at the end of chapter 4. They had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They weren't pressured into it. They weren't uh, uh, obligated. They did it out of the love of God and love of Christ in their hearts toward one another. Verse 46, So continuing uh, daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food, notice, with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So I want you to see the high spiritual level here that they had risen in the church. That higher spiritual level was not one of boasting. It was not one of, 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 of arrogance. It was not one of condescension. It was not one of looking down at everybody else. In fact, it was one that was based on the character of Christ-like humility. The higher spiritual level was based on Christ-like, or I should say on the character of Christ-like humility and love and genuine concern for others. 
Again, when they ate their food, they did it with gladness and simplicity of heart. They didn't boast. They didn't uh, uh, say, look at us, how much better we are now over everybody else. They had all things in common, which meant they were all equal to one another in the love of Christ. And then, as we saw last time, the very introduction of Barnabas at the end of, of the previous chapter prepares us for the first reported defection and blemish in the church. I use the word defection purposely because it, it really, uh, the, the, the basis of that word is, is defect. There was a defection that came. And that blemish was in the church. As I said last time, Barnabas serves as a contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. He serves as a contrast to these two people that we are looking at today. Joseph, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement, was a true man of God, you see. He was a true man of God who, who exhibited great generosity in giving the proceeds of his land sales to the apostles. But immediately following this, this is what we're told in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Immediately following that picture of, of Barnabas, and by the way, let me just say that I'm sure that when Barnabas offered it unto the Lord and he offered it there before the apostles, he just walked away. I'm sure that he just didn't, you know, people probably said, my, they were, they were impressed. They, they probably recognized him, but he, he didn't want that. He wanted God to be glorified. Please understand this. This is the contrast that we see in him toward these people that we're going to meet today. Because it says in verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias. And that word but is, is a big word here because it, it, it's, it's already letting us know that there's a tremendous contrast coming. And it says here, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. So up to this point, they only did what Barnabas did. And then it says, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's nothing given to us in the book of Acts to suggest that Barnabas gave what he did for the sake of recognition. Nothing here to tell us that he gave that so that he could be recognized. There's nothing that suggests that. It is Luke who, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, introduces us to Barnabas, who would later play a great role in the growth of the church. We meet him many times here in the book of Acts. But on the other hand... There is nothing in Acts to suggest that Ananias and Sapphira didn't give what they did for the sake of recognition. There's nothing here to tell us that they didn't do what they did so that they could get recognized, you see. This is what many students of the Scriptures believe. That the contrast that they show to Barnabas reveals their lying hypocrisy and their desire for respect, their desire for recognition from others. They were probably there when Barnabas laid down his gift before the apostles' feet and walked away. And in walking away, probably heard many people say, My, that's, that's a wonderful godly man. Well, you know, you know Barnabas did a, did a wonderful thing. And you know, when we talked about Barnabas being a, being a, a, a Levite from, uh, you know, from Cyprus and, and all, that uh, you know, this was an even more significant kind of gift that, that was given. But... Uh, they probably saw that, and out of that came this deception. So that's the first thing we need to look at here today. Deception. Deception. It is interesting to note that the name Ananias, or Ananias, comes from the Hebrew name Hanania. Hanania, which means the grace or mercy of the Lord, or, or it means God is gracious. That's what the name means. Isn't that an interesting? What a contrast to his actions. Even in his name, it's a deception. 
And I think of Sapphira as well, because the name Sapphira means beautiful. And yet what we find in these two people's hearts is something very ugly. So what a contrast there is in the name. What a, you know, what a deception there. Of course, we'll see their sin explained for us in verses 3, 4, and 9. But consider, if you will, that they could have retained the proceeds from the sale of their property. And yet, in collusion, in complicity, in conspiracy with each other, they lied. They lied. Saying that they had given all the money, when in fact they had only given a part. They wanted people to think that they had given it all to the church. They wanted people to think that they were special. The Greek word for the phrase kept back there, as, as you look in your text, there in verse 2, is, and it's also used in, in verse, verse 3. The, the phrase kept back is, is the word in the Greek, nosfitsomai, which literally means to misappropriate. But it is the same word that is used in the Septuagint rendering of Joshua chapter 7, Verse 21, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in Joshua 7.21, in regards to Achan's thievery, you'll look there for just a moment, Joshua 7.21, Achan is, is explaining what's going on and in, in, in what had happened because he had disobeyed the, 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 uh, the order that they were not supposed to gather any spoils. And it says, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. Same phrase, took them or kept back. Nosfitsomai. And there are, they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. And so we get a, a, a little better understanding of what that word means. More than just kept back, it means stolen, <laughs> taken, without permission. The only other time that the word is used in the New Testament is in Paul's letter to Titus when uh, he's explaining about slaves, that he is supposed to tell slaves that, that you know, they're, they're to be obedient to their, their masters. But then he says uh, in verse 10, not pilfering. The word pilfering, there's the same word, nosfitsomai. Not pilfering. The King James word is not purloining. <laughs> it's a, you know, it just means, you know, don't steal. Don't steal. Don't be a thief. But show all good fidelity, that, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. So to Christian slaves, he says, you know, don't be a stealer. Don't, don't, don't take things that don't belong to you. But in essence, just be a, an adornment of, of, the, of the great doctrine of God, the good fidelity of God and our Savior. Which is what Ananias and Sapphira should have done. <clears throat> but as our text indicates, both Ananias and his wife Sapphira were in on this deception. To try to appear more spiritual than they really were. Now, could this also have been a case of a love of money? We mentioned this last week. Could this have been a case of, of a love, uh, the love of money? Let me remind you, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, now please focus your attention on that statement, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The only difference here is that, uh, that uh, Ananias and Sapphira pierced themselves through but uh, uh, wouldn't uh, have uh, the opportunity to know the sorrows, at least on this earth, because they were gone. But it's the same greed. It's the same greediness. It's the same sorrow. 
So in thinking about the love of money being a root of all kinds of evil, could we not add to the evils and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira beyond the deception, beyond the hypocrisy? Could we not also add the sin of the disrespect toward God, a sin of vanity, a sin of ambition, a sin of faithlessness? In other words, not, not, just not trusting God. We could add all, we could add all those kinds of evil, uh, evils to this kind of sin of the love for money. And it is sad that the love of money takes this kind of control in a person. This kind of deception, I mean, certainly did not last long here. And there's good reason, and we'll explain that in just a moment. But this, this, uh, this kind of deception didn't last long, for there was something else working in the church. Satan, of course, is always trying to work in the church. He's always trying to uh, deceive. He's always trying to destroy what God has made. But please understand that there's always something working better in the church. And that is discernment and discovery through the power of the Holy Spirit. Discernment and discovery were working in the church. This was a very critical time for the church. And even though Satan tried to use Ananias and Sapphira, the Holy Spirit was was at work, especially in the heart of Peter. In verses 3 and 4 of our text it says, But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Why? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? It was up to you. You didn't have to lie. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Let me make this this statement very clear here. This, This verse here is giving us a tremendous doctrinal statement about the nature of of the triune God. First of all, he says that they have lied to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. And that Holy Spirit, who has been lied to, is called God. You have not lied to men, but to God. What does that say? It says there is one God in three persons. There is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit, but there's one God. And you've not lied to men, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men, you've lied to God. Great doctrinal statement here concerning the Trinity. But we go on. While there was certainly an attempt by Satan to disrupt and to destroy the church from without, in other words, from outside, through opposition, through persecution, as we saw in chapter 4, he also sought to do the same from within by temptation. And let me say that more destruction comes from within the church than from outside the church. When persecution actually attacks the church, that's when the church gets stronger. But when, pers- but, but when deception comes into the church and lies come into the church, then the church begins to de- uh, destruct from within, or uh, be destruct, uh, destroyed from within. And so Satan sought to de- do the same from within by temptation upon the carnal nature of man. Let's face it, we're all still in flesh. We're all still wrestling between the flesh and the spirit, and the spirit and the flesh, as the Apostle Paul has told us in the book of Romans. And, and suggests that in other uh, letters that he's written. But the point of the matter is that, that because of that, Satan still attempts to do many things by tempting us away from the truth of God. And it is here that he seeks to take control and to gain the influence over people especially believers who are supposed to be filled and to be led by the Holy Spirit. Think, for example, the words of James in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, when he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
But each one is tempted when he is drawn away. Notice, not by Satan's power. This isn't the devil made me do it. This isn't Flip Wilson theology. You remember Flip Wilson? Remember Geraldine? Who who remembers that? Who wants to admit their age here? Flip Wilson used to take, take that character, Geraldine, and say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. That's not what it says here. It says, God cannot be tempted by anyone, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. You see that? By his own desires and enticed. It's in here. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Another picture of seeing this temptation is temptation is always flying around us. The important thing is not, for us not to let it land on us. It's like a bird. The last thing we want is a bird to land on us because birds uh, do things, uh, you know. And, 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 and that's kind of the same picture here. Oh, that's a pretty bird, but I don't want it to land on me, you know. That's the temptation. Oh, it looks good, but I'll tell you what, when it lands on you, well, I won't explain I, I don't need to go into all of that. But you see, that's part of that process. Then when, they see, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And uh, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Because it only leads to death, you see. And by the way, James isn't writing this to unbelievers. He's writing this to the church. He's writing this to believers. And so this gives us now a bit of insight into this couple that is confronted by Peter, who, by the way, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he exercised the gifts of supernatural knowledge, what is called in 1 Corinthians 12, the word of knowledge, and discernment, the gift of discernment, to make the discovery of Ananias' heart and bring the sin to the surface. Was Ananias expecting praise for his gift? Think about this. He gives this gift. He walks over here and and just waits to see what people say. And Peter says, Ananias? Yes, Peter? That was a wonderful gift you gave. Thank you. But I'm a humble servant. Humble? Could he have been expecting some praise for what he gave? Instead, what happened? Peter rebukes him. He receives rebuke from Peter with a very interesting initial question. Listen to the question. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Think about this. Were there certain sins in Ananias' heart that had not been dealt with, that resurfaced in this lie toward the Holy Spirit? Is this not how the enemy works against us? Is it not true that each and every one of us, as we're, as we're walking that, uh, that narrow path, every day we deal with things in our lives and we say, you know what, this is just not honoring or pleasing to God. I want to give this up. I want to give it away because I don't, I, I don't want this to be in the way of my love for God, my worship to God, my praise to God. But how many of us have something like that, but we put it in a little closet in the back of our hearts and we say, well, I can bring that up whenever I feel like I need it. And sometimes we have that thing happening in our lives. We don't want to deal with these things. We put it in the back burner. We put it in the back room. We put it in the back closet. And God is saying every day, you know, there's something inside of you that I want. There's something that, you got a closet there. You need to open it up to me because I want to take what's inside of it. I want to give you something better. I want to give you something else. 
Folks, that is, that is a deep-rooted sin that we've never confessed unto God or a deep-rooted sin that we just haven't let go of. And it burns us, it, 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 and, and usually it burns us in, 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 in times that gets us away from serving the Lord. And then we feel guilty about it. And the enemy works on the guilt, he works on the sin, and he seeks to destroy us in all of that. And God used Peter to say to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Let's continue to look at these sins. Greed was certainly one of his sins, but there was one that was greater. There was the sin of pride. There was that sin of pride, the root of the deception and desiring everyone to think him quite spiritual that he gave all. That's pride. That comes from Satan. By the way, Satan is the father of what? He's the father of all lies, but he's also the father of pride. You think of Isaiah chapter 14, Lucifer, when he, talks, when he gives those five eyes, I will ascend into the highest place, I will ascend and sit on the throne, so on. You know, I will be like the most high. That's pride. And this is, this is Ananias bowing not to God, not to Christ, who humbled himself for us in coming on, to this earth in flesh. But he, but, but, but he, he looks to, to this pride. He looks to his own heart. He looks to what he could receive, what he could be recognized for. Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the Spirit of God who was working so graciously in the hearts of the believers, leading them to selflessly sell their belongings and share them with others. And Peter made it clear to him that the land and its value belonged to him alone. It belonged to Ananias. He could do with it what he wanted, but he needed to be honest about it. He was free to do with it what he wanted. And this is what makes this sin so unnecessary. I don't know if you caught the name, the title of this message today. I call it Unnecessary Sins. Necessary Deaths with a question mark. This is the unnecessary sin. This is what makes it so unnecessary. He had the opportunity. He had the, he, he had the, the, the control over what he had to give. All he had to do was be honest about it. You see, it is God. It is God who judges between sincerity and hypocrisy. It is God who judges between sincerity and hypocrisy. David, the psalmist king, knew this. David learned this lesson the hard way. And yet, he sought the Lord with genuine repentance. And he made this truth clear to us in a couple of passages of Psalms. In Psalm 51, verse 4. In that great psalm of repentance of David, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. Now, when it comes down to it, this is, this is what, what it is. This is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. When it comes down to it, we have sinned against him and him alone. Now, did David's sin also cause great consequence for others? Yes. Yes, it, it was a sin against other people too. It was a sin against Uriah. It was a sin against Bathsheba. You know, you can go on and on and on as to how many people were affected by David's sin. But when it comes down to it, David, between, between him and God, said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak. In other words, God, you're, you're the just one. You're the one that's going to offer the justice. And blameless when you judge. Because God alone is blameless. So he understood, you see, that God was the judge here. But he also learned something else in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4. 
David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Listen, God understands what we're thinking. God knows what we're thinking. God knows everything about us. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. That's how much God knows. And David knew this. And it's a tremendous statement when he says, You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Who's afar off? God's not afar off. For Him to know our very hearts is not afar off. We're the ones that are far off. We're the ones who get so far off that we're, our thoughts, we think, are far enough away from Him, but they never can be. So David knew, you're, you're, uh, you understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Even before I speak the next word, God knows what I'm going to say. That is that awesomeness. That is that, that greatness of God that we need to bow to. And it's important to note that Peter, Peter, Peter did not, did not, did not pronounce a death sentence on Ananias. It was not Peter who pronounced that death sentence. All he did was ask him a question. Ask him a bunch of questions. But then he told him, you have not lied to men, you've lied to God. But Peter did not pronounce a death sentence on Ananias. His part in this matter was to simply confront Ananias' sin. And to know the heart of Peter, and to know by what he's written in, in the scriptures, to know that of him would, would, would be to say that, you know, he was not looking for Ananias to, you know, to die physically. He wanted him to die spiritually. He wanted him to die to himself and to his sin. But notice verse uh, uh, five. Now we come to deaths. You see, after the discovery, after the discernment and discovery, we come to these deaths. Verse five. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. You know, that's the understatement of the year. That's the understatement of all time. Great fear came upon the church when somebody died in church. And the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. That was the first assignment for the youth ministry. To bury this Ananias. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and, and the young man came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church. By the way, this is the first time the word church is mentioned in the book of Acts, the word ecclesia. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Again, what an understatement. Two deaths, greater fear, <laughs> has come to the church. These deaths, pure and simple, were an act of God. Please listen to me. These deaths were, pure and simple, an act of God. Let us first of all say that this was not a case of church discipline. This was not a case of church discipline. 
For Jesus himself laid out the strategy for pastors and elders in local church situations. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, by the way. Where they were to investigate a matter. They were to give opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. And then they were to seek to restore those who had erred. That's what Jesus taught us. And so, this wasn't church discipline. Secondly, Peter isn't to be blamed here. There are people who blame Peter for this, but, but he's not to be blamed here. Some people assume this was the apostle's intention. I said before, I don't believe that was his intention at all. He was probably as surprised as everyone else who witnessed the death of Ananias. Ananias, you have not lied to, only to men, you've lied to God. Pfft, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know. I had a tremendous surprise uh, many years ago, a few years ago, when we were in the old building up in front, over here in the front, frontage part. Some of you didn't, didn't know we had a little white building over there before we built this building here. But uh, it was July, it was hot, it was around this same time, you know. Uh, we just started a service, and uh, I was just getting up and giving some preliminary messages or announcements or whatever. But it was so hot in the, in the building, you know, and, and we had a couple of men go up to, upstairs, and one of them was a good-sized guy, about my size. And took a step in the wrong direction, went through a skylight, came right into the service. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. Unexpected. The good thing is he didn't die. He, 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 I thought he was going to. It was a 27-foot drop. And he fell right in, right in front, right there. You know. Well, not right there, but in the other place. But, but in, front, in front of me, I'm like, whoa, you know. I didn't expect that. And we don't expect things like that. You know, we never know. Praise the Lord. We prayed for him. The hot, you know, the ambulance came, took him. He, he's fine. But, you know, the, just a tremendous uh, scare, you know. I don't believe that Peter expected this why then did this righteous judgment of God have to occur when it did and how it did well going all the way back to chapter 2 as we already quoted the fear of God was central to the life of the church the fear of God was central to the life of the church remember in Acts 2.43 then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles fear came upon every soul the church of Jesus Christ was founded upon the fear of God. The proper, right, reverential, respectful fear of God. That is how we are to worship and to praise Him today. That is how we are to fear Him today. The book of Proverbs, it tells us that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. The early church had this proper and right fear of God. It was a reverential fear. It was a fear of wonder. It was a fear of awe. It was a fear of respect given to an awesome God, as we sang about today. Our God is an awesome God. In other words, they had a high view of God. The early church had an, a, a high view of God, and we should have a high view of God today. Is this not being lost, though, today in the church, where in many cases there is a high view of man and a low view of God and His Word? I don't want us to lose sight that, that we worship a holy God, a God that the Bible tells us is holy, 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 Isaiah chapter 6. Never throughout all of the Scriptures do we find that, that God is, is, is three times... Mentioned, you know, as far as one of his one of his uh, uh, attributes or characteristics, uh, holiness is the only one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. 
It never says that He's love, 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 faithful, 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 true, true, true. Though He's all of that and more. He is holy, holy, holy. And we are to have a high view of God. And we're to have a high view of His Word. We're to have a high view of the name of Christ. We're to have a high view of the God that created us in His image. But what has happened today? So much of the church is now focused upon what man does and what man can do. And, you know, men are elevated and men's names are placed here and placed there. And folks, I don't know, I'm not trying to judge anybody, but all I can tell you is this. We're not here to be elevated. The name of Jesus is to be elevated. The person of Christ is to be honored. The person of Christ is to be glorified. God is to be worshipped. Not us. As pastors and leaders in the church, we're, to, we're, we're, we're at the bottom of the, of the heat. This is what we've learned in the book of Acts. The servants of the church, we pray for you. Whether you like it or not, we pray for you. I suppose some people wouldn't want us to pray for you, but we do. We pray for you. We burden our hearts over you. Because we want you to be right with God. We want you to live your lives right before Jesus. We want you to be lights to this dark world. Not part of the darkness. We want you to be part of the light. We care about you seeing God for who He is. You don't have to live in sin anymore. You don't have to live in the ugliness of all those things. If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you. Isn't that something to worship God about? He's faithful to do that so that you can be free to be the light that God wants you to be. But you have to see Him as holy. You have to see Him as lifted up. So now consider, why such a harsh judgment? Why such a harsh judgment on Ananias? And, and soon to follow uh, Sapphira. Here was the beginning of a new work of God. And the impurity and the sin and the scandal and the satanic influence would have corrupted the early church and their view of a holy God. And God was not going to allow that one bit. For if, he had, if, for if that had been allowed, that, the early church would have been the late church. Consider the history of Israel. And at the beginning of new works of God in the Old Testament, holiness was to be maintained. You remember Aaron's sons in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They came and offered in a sacrifice, they came and offered a strange fire unto the Lord, strange incense unto God. Not the incense that was prescribed for them to offer. They knew better. They offered strange fire. They thought they could offer something better than everybody else to God. And they were consumed by fire. Now keep that in mind. I mentioned Achan in Joshua chapter 7, who tried to hide sin from God, and he was executed. Uzzah, who was killed for touching the Ark of the Covenant while it was being transported in an unlawful manner. It was already being transported the wrong way. And they were trying to get this cart that they had the Ark of the Covenant on, moving it, and, and, and it, uh, you know, it started falling off of this particular cart, and, and he went to try to, he should have just let it go. The ground wasn't good, you know, the ground God made, so you know, it wasn't a bad thing for it to hit the ground, but no, he, he, he thought, well, no, I better hold it up, and he touched it, and boom, he was gone. Why? Because he wasn't supposed to touch. The priests were supposed to carry that. They were supposed to have poles that would go through these holes in the Ark of the Covenant to carry it. Poles made of wood, not made of sinful flesh. And he touched it, and he was killed. 
God's a holy God. Why did these things happen, you see? Listen carefully, going back to Nadab and Abihu, going back to Aaron, going back to Moses, Leviticus 10, verse 3. Listen to what it says. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. What could the father of these two boys or these two men say? He held his peace. He realized God was holy. He realized God is to be glorified. The problem is, in these situations, man is trying to take the glory from God. Man is trying to take the glory from God. And God will not have that. In Scripture we are told, by God Himself, I am God, there is no other. The glory is mine. The glory is mine. I burn my heart to think that so many people who are taking a lot of glory for themselves today in the name of Christ, in the name of preaching, will one day soon find out that God does not share His glory with anyone. I don't want glory. I want God to, give it all, to get it all because it's His. The presence of God and the holiness of God needs always to be recognized. The presence of God and the holiness of God need always to be recognized. And there's good reason. And by the way, in the New Testament, we are, we are exhorted. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, it says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence, notice, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. I think that lets us know pretty well that God never changes. That God is always the same. And of course in the book of Hebrews it also tells us, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, we have grace. Yes, we've been given mercy. Yes, we've been... uh, We've had the love of Christ extended to us. Saved and and, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But folks, knowing that, let's worship Him for who He is. Sapphira was not only a willing participant, you see, in this sin, but in the deception as well. I'm sure that it was Peter's hope that that she would come clean in the matter or or at least reveal that she didn't know anything. But of course, the Spirit was working through Peter for the sake of the church. And so he he confronted Sapphira as well. He, He may have even pointed to the money at his feet. It might have still been there. And that and that's when he asked, so tell me, did you sell the land for so much? Pointing to this money? Did you sell the land for this much? She says, yes, for so much. He wanted her to tell him that if the property, uh, if, if they sold the property for the supposed amount that, that he brought to the church. Let's look at the text, 7 through 10. Now, it, it was about three hours later. So we don't know where Sapphira was, but three hours later when his wife came back in and not knowing what had happened. Interesting. Ananias was dead and Sapphira didn't even know it. May I share with you that Satan keeps his servants in the dark? 
Satan likes to keep his servants in the dark. God likes to guide his servants in the light. She didn't even know it. Then it says, Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out. Now, what he didn't know about Ananias before, he knows now about Sapphira. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Now, we're not sure what kind of marriage that Ananias and Sapphira had, but one thing for sure, they agreed on one last thing in their marriage, and that was to test the Spirit of the Lord. What they should have done was to find something to agree on for the Lord and not against the Lord. What Peter didn't know before concerning Ananias' death, he would now know about Sapphira. Together, they would suffer God's judgment. Because together, they conspired against God. Why? Because Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias and Sapphira were more concerned about their reputation than they were about their character. And that is a sad thing for anyone in the church. To be more concerned about reputation than to be concerned about character. I don't know which great saint said this. I I know some people attributed Leonard Ravenhill and others... But somebody once said, reputation is what men think you are, character is what God knows you are. They were more concerned about reputation than they were about their character. Now the question has to be asked, were these two people Christians? And and were they saved? Well, we, we can't really say for certain. Though we may conclude from certain statements in the text that they were part of the fellowship of believers. And then again, only the Lord knows for certain, but, but there were verses in Scripture that make it possible for Christians to sin unto death. And by the way, there are verses in Scripture as well that tell us that Christians who are true Christians can, can oftentimes take their eyes off the Lord and, and, and be led away, be led astray by the enemy. This is very possible. But we're told in 1 John chapter 5.16, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, it says. I do not say that he should pray about that. But he does say there is a sin leading to death, and the context really is talking about a brother that sins. Then we think of the situation that was brought up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a very evil, wicked situation uh, that that was going on in Corinth. And and Paul says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verses 4 and 5, When you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one, the one who committed this sin, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we've often seen this particular verse that says, you know, you set them aside uh, outside of the church, but, you know, for the destruction of the flesh, that, that uh, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here's the question. Were there, ne- were there necessary deaths here? Were these necessary deaths? There was unnecessary sin, but were these necessary deaths? Let me just say very simply that the Lord did not expect the church to execute judgment. He has not put it on us to do that to anyone. We are not called to execute judgment for God in the church. He administered the judgment to protect His church. He administered judgment 
to protect his church. You see, we must see it from God's perspective, not ours. We will be too tolerant. We will be too accepting, even too forgiving sometimes. But it has to be laid in the hands of God. God takes care of these things because he is perfect, because he is righteous, because he is just, and because he's true. But most importantly, because he's holy. And we have to be like Aaron when Moses said what he said to him. When in the presence of God, we must regard him as holy and we must give him the glory. The last thing I want to deal with today is disposition. Disposition. What is our motive for acting in honesty and integrity as Christians? This is an important question for all of us. What is our motive for acting in honesty and integrity as Christians? You see, it isn't that we don't want to die in such a revealing way like Ananias and Sapphira. Although some might be thinking right now, I don't want to die like that. I better worship God. (laughs) I better bow down to the Lord. Well, you should bow down to the Lord. But what's our motive for acting in honesty? What is our motive for being men and women of integrity? Our motive should always be this. It should always be God's love for us. Our motive to act in honesty and integrity is God's love for us. It isn't that we don't want to die, but that we want to to be alive and we want to be living unto God through His Spirit and in us. His Spirit in us. We want to be alive, you see. I began with, with saying something to the effect that, you know, some people may look and appear alive because they do a lot of this kind of stuff, you know. But you know what? It's inside. You can be on the outside doing all kinds of things, but inside, dead works, dead faith. Barely alive, spiritually, maybe. God doesn't want us barely alive in the church. He wants us fully alive unto Christ. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because He's our life now. And He's given us His Spirit. And if that's the case, we need to be alive in Christ. Not barely alive. As members of Christ's body, we shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't want to be barely alive as members of Christ's body, the church. We want to be fully alive. You see what our disposition is then? What does it mean to, what what is our disposition? That is our nature, our character, our temper, whatever we are. What what is our disposition? It is to be that of Jesus Christ. That is what is to be fully alive and filled with God's Spirit and led by Him to be genuinely generous by His grace, that not of ourselves, but for all who have need of God's grace and salvation. That is what we saw in the early church. That was their heart. When they saw need, they responded. They acted upon it. Why? Because they had the mind of Christ. They had the heart of Christ. They had the Spirit of Christ. And so do we. But is it being seen in this way? Or are we seeking more recognition than we are seeking to give God the glory? Or are we more concerned about reputation than we are about our character? You see, let me close with this thought from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6, and I encourage you to read verses 1 through 4, but I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 when he says, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You see, that, that's really where our character should lie. It should lie when we see something, we do it, and, and, and we give God the glory. And God delights when we give him the glory. And when we do something in secret so that no one else has to see, so we don't get the recognition, you know what God says, I'll reward you openly. And has not God blessed us all? Has not God blessed us all so openly? And all, the, all that we have, I mean, just, we just wonder, Lord, why are you so good to us? Why? When we think of what we came from, when we think of what we've been, or what we did before we came to know Christ, how many of us were blasphemers, think about that. We at one time were blasphemers. We used the name of God in vain and the name of Christ in vain. We used it as a curse word. But today, now we have to see it as a holy name. A name that when we say it, we want to say it with such reverence, with such respect. And when we see things that are needed in, in other people's lives, we, we respond not to be seen of men, but God who sees what we do in secret. He's going to reward you openly. Not one of us have, have needs uh, uh, that God hasn't met. He's always going to meet those needs. Yeah, there should be fear about what we've seen here. Great fear should be upon the church. Boy, if that, all that stuff happened today, what would we say? What would we do? You don't have to see that to know that God is holy. To know that God cares about us being honest and being right. And I think that that's why I said earlier today when we started our service that I didn't want you to come here and look for the normal, for the natural. Naturally, we're going to go through a, a set order of worship. I want you to come to look at that. You know what it is already. But did you come to seek God? Did you come to lay down your sins before Him? Did you come to mend your ways with yourselves and with God and with one another? Because that's what honors God. That's what gives glory to God when we act in Christ's name and do what Christ has taught us to do with each other. That's when God is glorified. And we can rejoice in His glory. Let's pray.